Well, there once lived three blind men in a village. And the villagers one day said, hey, there's an elephant in the village today. Now, the blind man had no idea what an elephant is. And they want to go check it out. But of course, the problem is they're blind, so they can't see the elephant. So they said to themselves, well, let us at least go and touch the elephant and describe what it's like to see what this thing that you call an elephant is. And so they go and they begin to touch the elephant. And the first blind man begins to describe it. He thinks, oh, I think, I think an elephant is like a pillar. Because at that particular point, he was touching the leg of the elephant. The second blind man says, no, I think it's more like a rope. Because at that point, he was touching the tail of the elephant. The third blind man disagreed to all of them. He said, no, 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 no. It is more like a branch of a tree because at that point he was touching the trunk of the elephant. And they begin to fight. So no, I'm right. They all thought that they were right about what they were describing. Their friendship might have ruined, been ruined this day if it was not for a, a wise man who came walking along, saw these blind men arguing, Ask them, gentlemen, what's the problem? And they tell him. They said, hey, we're blind. We don't know what an elephant is. So we came, touched the elephant, tried to describe what it is. They gave, then they gave him their descriptions. And he saw, because the wise men could see, their problem. He said, oh, I see you're, you've each touched a different part of the elephant. And you're describing that part. And you think that the elephant is that one part, but in fact, you're all right because you're each describing a part, but the whole thing is bigger than just the part you're touching. So you're all right. And they're like, hey, cool. We're all right. And they remain friends. Well, my name is Jared Irvine, and I am the pastor of junior high here. And this morning, I have the honor to preach to you because so many are away at this marriage retreat. So they've asked me. You gave me this morning. Awesome. So the parable that I just told you, the blind man and the elephant, a little strange, but it is used often at secular universities to describe uh, relativistic truth that just like the blind men were touching different parts of the elephant, they all thought they were right. But in fact, the truth is bigger than the part they're touching. And so they'll say, you know, religions make absolute claims that they know the truth. But this parable says that in fact, all you know is the part that you're touching and you're just thinking it is the truth when it is just a part of it. So in fact, everyone's right. At least that's the claim of the parable. Now, this is told in humility because they say humans, and they're right, have finite knowledge. We don't know everything. So how could a human make 
an absolute claim to know something that's like absolutely true. If you're not an absolute being, you're just a finite creature. And so in our culture, it is offensive to say that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the truth. Now, it's not just offensive in our culture, in our day. It has been offensive in every age of the church, that people have been martyred in our history for claiming that Jesus is the way and in fact dying for it. For you see, Christians, wouldn't it just be easier if you just conceded a little bit? I don't want to get grammatical necessarily on you, but if you just take the definite article, the, instead of saying Jesus is the way, and you just slightly change it to the indefinite article, which is a way. No one in our culture would really have a problem with that. If only you said Jesus is a way, a truth, they would pat you on the back, they'd call you friend, they would say, I agree. I just think a different way. But we're all right. But why? Why have Christians in every age not settled, not conceded to that point, but said, no, we believe that Jesus is not just a way, but the way. It's because they believe that the scriptures said it. They believe what they described was that Jesus is the way. John 14, 6, this is Jesus' own words. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is using absolute terms. Absolutely, he really is. And that was offensive in his day, and it sure is offensive in our day. But why have people died over this? It's because they believe it's true. And they believe that Jesus is not just a wise man, though he is. That he's not just a prophet, though he is, that he's not just a religious guide, but that he is actually God incarnate, which means God became human. That's earth shattering. That God actually became human and walked among us. And that is the person of Jesus in the first century. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that speaks of Jesus in such exalted terms. It's one of these passages is the reason why we hold such strong convictions about who Jesus is, that we will not concede to call him a way, but that he is the way, that he's not a God, he is the God. It's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in that passage this morning. I 
what we're going to do is we're going to read the first three verses. So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read 15 through 17. And then we're going to later on read the next three. So this is Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. A lot of all things. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17 describes Jesus as the creator. Now, before, before we jump to conclusions and say that Jesus is God because he created stuff, because, you know, I mean, humans create things, right? I mean, we're made in the image of God. And part of what that image means is that we create stuff. I mean, we're sitting in a building. At one point, believe it or not, this building did not exist. Someone had to create it. The very chair that you find somewhat comfortable. Someone created. So before we jump to conclusions, just say, oh yeah, he's God. It says it. Because humans create. I mean, even, even the smallest of us. Perhaps your child is in Sunday school right now and they're going to be making a little craft. How cute. And they're going to present it to you. Look what I made, mommy. And by artistic standards, it's probably not going to be brilliant. But if your dog were to make a craft like that, that dog would be a genius. Well, so what is in the human that we create? even the little ones. And it's not just like a building, like construction or gardening, but it's like, do we have scrapbookers, you know, in the house where you, where you take pictures, maybe a family vacation somewhere, and you put it together in this little book and it's wonderful, beautiful. Why do we do that? Why do we order things? Why do, why do we want to feel that impulse? It's because we are made in the image of God. A creating God. One of my, fa my favorite creators, because he cooks food, is my father. And we call him the kitchen magician. Because he's, well, he's an excellent, he's an excellent chef. And I'm sorry for all the mothers out there that I did this. And youth, listen up. Do, don't do this to your parents. But I got hungry, and I've done this more than once, but me and my brother would be hungry, and we would search the cupboards and the fridge, and we'd open it up, and we would say those heart-piercing words to a mother, there's nothing to eat. Sorry, mom, I did that. 
but what, I, what I'm saying, there is something to eat. I mean, there is not like the cupboards were not completely empty, people. But what was the problem was there was nothing that I wanted to eat. Or I couldn't make it. I don't have skill to do that. So we would say that. And my father would hear those words. And that was a challenge. That was like throwing up the bat symbol at Gotham City. And he would get on his cape. But instead of a cape, it was an apron. And he would begin to say, oh, yeah, I can do this. And he would make a meal out of what we thought were scraps or undesirable things. And he could create and make a wonderful, tasty, perhaps even fancy gourmet meal. And we would say, you did it again. The kitchen magician. But as great as my father is, and he is a wonderful chef, he did not create out of thin air. He used existing material. He didn't say like, oh, you want pasta? Voila. And it just like out of thin air was there. Hot, steamy, marinara. Oh, just no. He didn't do that. He used stuff, right? That already existed. Noodles, sauce, whatever. Put it together. Yes, he has skill. Yes, he has vision. But he didn't create out of thin air. They already existed. So we think about Jesus here, as Colossians 1, 15 through 17 is calling him the creator. Does he use prior existing material? Yeah, he's awesome. Yes, he's powerful. But he's already there. Is that what it says of him? 116 says, for by him all things were created. It's pretty strong that it's saying that he created everything. Yes, that exists. Okay. And if you didn't think it was just like, okay, maybe it's just things on earth. It says in heaven and on earth. And in case you just cry, really, is that what you're saying? Everything that exists? Yeah, heaven on earth and visible and invisible. So all the stuff you see, sure. But even the stuff that you're like, it's here, it's invisible, I don't see it. He also created that. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, these great, powerful beings created them. And in case, again, you weren't convinced, he repeats himself. All things were created through him and for him. Colossians makes it very clear that the kind of creation that Jesus did is the kind of creation that God only does, which is create out of nothing. Not using prior existing material, but that existing material that exists now only came because of him. In the Old Testament, God is the creator. If there's one attribute of God that is very clear is that he is the creator of everything. That's what kind of makes you not God, me not God, and him God. Is, did I have a beginning? Was I created? Check yes, you're not God. He creates everything 
That exists. That's what makes him God. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible starts off with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a way of saying, you see everything that exists, God created it. That sounds familiar. It uses heaven and earth. Well, Colossians also says that. 116, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So what it's doing here is God is the creator. That's obvious. It's applying it now to Jesus. That's shocking. You mean that guy who was born in the first century? You're saying he, in his prior human existence, created everything? Yes. Now, this is not, uh, the foundation is not polytheism, which means believe in many gods. They don't believe that there are many gods, many creators, so they could, they could say, you know, Yahweh in the Old Testament is God, creator, and then Jesus, this other God. They did not come from that background. They came from a Jewish monotheistic background, which is that there is one God. And what they just did was apply what that one God does as the creator out of, every, out of nothing comes everything, and they apply that to Jesus. That's a strong claim, to say the least. But perhaps Colossians is an isolated passage. Does there, is there anywhere else in the New Testament that speaks like this of Jesus? The answer is yes, several. Uh, there are two other main ones that I'll mention is that John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. So if you can think of this, it's pretty easy to remember. They're all, start, they're all chapter 1. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning, sounds familiar. Sounds like Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, later in John, John 1.14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is describing the incarnation. But before it was the flesh, there was the Word. And this Word was, just was. He was in the beginning. It didn't say, it does not say, in the beginning, God created the Word. It says, in the beginning, There was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was indeed God. John 1.3 says, All things, sounds just like Colossians, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. So we get what John is doing here is he's saying the positive, everything that exists through him. Then he goes the negative route, which says, Every, you know, everything exists and it wouldn't have existence if it wasn't for him. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, 
through whom he created the world. So we have his three different authors, John, Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, saying the same exact thing. This is not an isolated passage. This is bedrock New Testament truth that Jesus is the creator God. Before we move on, one last thing. It's just this little word, so easy to overlook. It's only three letters. It's the word for, F-O-R. And it's really important how it's used in this passage. 116 of Colossians says, All things were created through him and for him. Now, it's one thing if God created God or Jesus and then Jesus was the means by which everything came into existence. But it says that everything is for him. That's a purpose, which that could really only be said of God, that everything was created for him. Which, of course, is a great application to our lives, is we are not independent beings but we were created by him. And yes, we were created for him. The next three verses we shall read now. This speaks of, so we saw Christ as the creator. These now speak of Christ as the redeemer. And it says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the Redeemer. And just like we saw of creator, this title and this works of God that are attributed to God and to God alone in the Old Testament, same is this, this title and work of redeemer. The number one, the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament is the Exodus, the Exodus story. The one with the 10 plagues, you know, and they bring the people of Israel out of slavery. And God is the one who, who does all of that. I mean, yeah, Moses is a prophet, but God is the one who actually brings the plagues and actually splits the sea and actually brings these great miraculous works so that the people could be redeemed out of the slavery. And that is to God's work alone. And in Exodus 15 is this song, the song of, of the people who, they just came out of Egypt. And they sing this song to God. And they say, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. They attribute redemption to God. And then Isaiah 43, God says, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, 
and besides me, there is no Savior. There is no Savior. That redemption, that salvation is only in God and in God alone. But when we get to the New Testament, what's even more clear is that Jesus is attributed as our Redeemer, as our Savior, even more than Creator even. There are a lot more passages. I can go, there's so many that I could quote that speak of Jesus as our Savior, Redeemer. It's, it's just saturated the New Testament. One passage, Romans 10, 9, because it's very famous. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That Jesus, salvation is found in him. That we confess that he is Lord. That we confess that he is our savior and that we are saved. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question is, who is the Lord in Romans 10 and 10, 13, when it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? It has to be Jesus. Because in Romans 10, 9, it says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, right? Okay. The, the thing with Romans 10, 13 is that is not original to Romans. It's a quotation. He's quoting. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting Joel 2.32. And it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's the Lord in Joel 2.32? Yahweh. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Paul is quoting that passage and applying it to Jesus. That Jesus is Lord, that he is God. And so what we get between these, this and, the, and Colossians in this passage, what they're doing is they're attributing the works of creation and the works of redemption, which are attributed to God and God alone in the Old Testament. And they're applying it now in the New Testament to Jesus without even blinking an eye. And so the conclusion is that it is quite abundantly clear that Jesus is God, that he is God incarnate, God who walked among us. Now I have to say this, but it's really deep waters. Christianity believes in something called a trinity, comprised of two words, meaning tri, unity, three, one. We believe in one God, monotheism. But the one God subsists of three persons, a father, son, spirit. Now the father is not the son, the son is not the spirit, the spirit is not either. They are three persons, but mysteriously one God that is deep waters. That is the bedrock of Christian belief. So what they're doing is they're not saying that Jesus is a separate God. It is one God, three persons. So Jesus is not just some 
prophet. He's not just some wise man, some religious guide. He is God come into the flesh. But why, one of the greatest questions you could ask is why did God become human? Why did you do that? Why did he do that? Colossians 1.20 says to reconcile by making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, this morning we opened up with that parable of the blind man and the elephant. The diagnosis of the human problem in that parable is ignorance. You need some religious guide to come along and tell you what's wrong, tell you what the truth is. Although that's a problem in Christianity, the fundamental problem is not ignorance. The fundamental problem of humanity is sin. It's a broken relationship with God. It's a ruined, spoiled relationship. And so Jesus did not come to merely tell us our problem. He actually came to do something about it. That the gospel is not, hey, you're, you're a sinner, good luck. The gospel is that you are a sinner and I actually came to do something about it. That forgiveness is available. That life is available. That he died in our place. And then he rose from the grave to give us new life. So the Bible says there's only one person, there's only one person that actually came to do something about the fundamental problem of humanity, who actually dealt with sin, that could actually reconcile our relationship with God. And that is Jesus. He is the only one who did that. He is our only one. And so our culture hates, in some ways, the exclusiveness of the gospel. They say, why must there only be one way? But praise God that there is even a way, that God, out of his great mercy, out of sheer grace, provided a way, that he sent Jesus to die in our place. He became human so he could die in our place and give us new life in his resurrection. And so, yes, the gospel is exclusive in the sense that salvation is only through Jesus because he's the only one that actually came to deal with our fundamental issue of sin. But the gospel is totally inclusive. It's for the world. Salvation is given to the world if they would receive it, if they would believe it, if they would take hold of Jesus. Jesus declares, he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That there are, even in this room, we are human, right? That we have guilt, that we have shame in our lives. For we have done wrong, and there is something wrong about us. When Adam and Eve first fell into the garden, they hid from God. It's the first thing they did. They went and 
hid from him. And that's understandable because they're afraid, right? They're afraid that his anger. And so we do that. We have still, we're still hiding. And then they try to put clothes on themselves to cover up their shame, to cover up who they are. But God sees right through that. That's man-made clothing. That's, that's to cover it up. And we put facades on. We put smiles on. We put like everything's all right. But not everything is all right. We know deep down inside that something is wrong. And there's a reason why we hide. Because we're afraid that God would be angry. We're afraid of what a holy and righteous God would do if we actually saw him face to face. And so, so many have bought into a lie that God hates them. If there's anything that the gospel says, it is quite the contrary, that God loves you. That's why God became human, that he loves you, that there is something wrong with us. And so he has died for us, that he knows you're broken. He knows that. He has come to restore you. He has come to give you new life. In the gospel, there are these stories of healing. And they would come to Jesus, sometimes with trepidation, but they wanted to be healed so bad. And they come to him. And they would always, sometimes they would preface their request with this. They would say, if you are willing, heal me. If you are willing. And Jesus, every single time, he never turns them away. He always says, I am willing. Be healed. You cannot be healed unless you come to the doctor. Some of us, perhaps are, are living in our religious strength. We think that if we only do this, that we would earn the favor of God. Well, if you could earn the favor of God, there would be not a need to sin Jesus to die on the cross in our place. The, that act right there tells us that it is impossible for us to do that on our own. That us too, even religious ones who try to do certain things to earn the favor of God, need to lay down that burden. Because it is quite a burden to try to be perfect. Because we cannot. The gospel is that Jesus, the one who is perfect, died for those who are not. And Jesus is the one. He is the only one who could heal us and restore us. Well, again, we, we opened up with the, the parable of some blind people. Jesus in John chapter 9 heals a man who was born blind and later comes to him and he, and he asks him this question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man, or the man who was blind that was healed, says, tell me who it is so that I may believe. 
And Jesus replies saying, the one who is speaking to you is he. And the man exclaims, I believe. And he worships Jesus. Jesus is asking us the same question this morning. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And I pray that we have the kind of response that the man who was born blind had when he says, I believe, and he worshiped him. For Jesus not only healed him of physical healing, but the man saw who Jesus was. That Jesus is the one who could heal. That Jesus is the one who could save. That Jesus is the one that could restore. That Jesus is the one that loves you. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. Look to the one this morning. I'm going to pray in a second, but if any would like to pray after service to receive the one who can heal and restore, I'll be down here below. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And just this, this wonderful passage, this exalted passage of Jesus where you are our creator, that you are our redeemer. God, we just thank you. We just praise you that even after you created us and we went astray, that, that you became human and died for us and rose from the grave to give us new life. And that is available in Christ that all we have to do is come and receive from him, that you are willing to heal, that you love us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would comfort the hearts here, that they would have the boldness in Christ to draw near to you in a deep abiding relationship of love. We pray this all in the name of the beautiful, matchless name of Christ. Amen. Be blessed.